Revelation chapter number 7, and beginning in verse number 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. That's right, God's going to hurt the earth. He is not signing off on the new green deal. And don't worry, the environmentalists think that man's going to destroy the earth. God is saving plenty for him to destroy. Verse 3, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Naphtalim were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed twelve thousand, of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin, were sealed 12,000. Twelve different tribes, 12,000 each, 12 times 12. 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. Part one is identification and essential doctrines about these 144,000. There is a lot of misinformation and confusion about who these 144,000 are and who they represent. And so part one, we're going to be really focused. I'm going to try to teach you some things here today. We're going to be real teachy. As I like to say, I'm going to try to learnize you some things. And so a lot of teaching. We're going to have some scripture on the screen, and I'm going to ask you to turn to several places in your Bible and hopefully... The Lord will help us to identify, understand, and also reveal some little side doctrines that are important that we understand them so that we can understand the Word of God. Let's pray and ask God to bless us today. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for this church and, Lord, for everyone who has come to church today, for everyone who is watching through live stream Lord, anyone that would listen to this message later on through download or tuning in to our uh, live stream later on, Father, we pray that you'd help us now, empower us, and guide us and direct us as Brother Kimberlin has already prayed, give us clarity of mind and help us to use good, use our time wisely, stay on track, and Lord, uh, help us to not say or do anything that would hinder Lord, uh, the understanding of the Word of God, and Lord, the application that we do with it, what you'd have us to. So speak to our hearts, and uh, above all, if someone here is lost, we pray that you'd save them before they leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. So, as I've already said, today 
we are going to identify who these 144,000 are, as well as expose some common false teachings, all of which are the result of not rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 is a key verse for everyone who reads the Bible. The Bible says of itself that we should study to show ourselves approved unto God. Study. I'm not saying that we should never Google anything, but I'm telling you what, you're way better off to study than you are to Google. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word of God, the word of truth is supposed to be rightly divided. That is different than saying interpreted rightly or whatever. I mean, we're supposed to understand how the Bible fits together because there are passages of Scripture all throughout the Bible and even particularly in the New Testament portion in which passages of Scripture seem to contradict and they seem to say one thing in one place and a different thing in another. And that doesn't mean that there's contradictions. It means that we've got to rightly divide it and figure out how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. I'm going to try to help you in some things that the Lord has taught me and help you to see them. And as always, don't take my word for anything. Study it for yourself. And if what I'm saying here today is true and accurate, and I certainly uh, I certainly believe it to be so and certainly hope it to be so, If it is, then take that and continue to learn and grow in the Word of God. Now, verse number one of our text is an interesting text. It talks about the four corners of the earth. Now, this verse, as an interesting note, has been used by some to claim that the earth is flat. Four corners. You say, well, you you must be talking about 1492, 14, what, 14, when was it? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You must be talking about back then. I wish I was. There are Bible-believing Christians today that still believe the earth is flat. Shocking. But it is true. And the same people, what they do is they take this, I'm a Bible believer and I believe that the Bible is written literally and I'm going to present you some truths today that are, you have to be a Bible literalist in order to understand what it's really saying. But understand too that there are things in the Bible that are written in figurative language, metaphorical language. We all use it in order to make a literal point, and it's important that we understand that. Just because this says that there are four corners of the earth doesn't mean that the earth's flat and has four corners like a square. Corners are often, you find in the Old Testament, it talks about people, it talks about the Jewish people rounding the corners of their beard. It just means the extreme location. You know, north, south, east, east, and west. The extreme north, extreme south, extreme east, extreme west. Those are the four corners of the earth. It's not a contradiction. There are some who take this same Bible literal mentality and they use it to teach that the earth is the center of the universe and the sun actually revolves completely around the earth every 24-hour period of time. 
And if you look at those proof texts that they use, it's not saying that. You know, when you look up at the sky, what do you see? You see the sun moving, right? That's what we see, but that doesn't mean that that's what's happening because we can't see the earth rotating because we happen to be on it. And so there are logical, rational explanations, and it's not denying the literality of the Word of God. It's just simply looking at it and saying, all right, that's what it says, but what does it literally mean? There's all kinds of passages like that. The Bible says the tongue is set on fire of hell. That doesn't mean that you're walking around with a habanero pepper on your tongue. It's a figurative language making a literal truth. Yes, the tongue is indeed set on fire of hell. But it's not the literal fire of hell. It's the what hell represents. Wickedness and evil and so forth. And so it's important that we understand these things. The passage of Scripture we just read is a parenthetical passage. It's inserted between the sixth and the seventh seals... In fact, the sixth seal, the, the, the sixth seal we, we saw it in Revelation 6.12, and the seventh doesn't appear until Revelation 8, verse number 1. And so the Holy Spirit inserts this particular passage because we can ascertain that this takes place sometime between, sometime during these six seals. It's parenthetical. Now, many religions have perverted the revelation of the 144,000 in many ways. They spiritualize the passage to teach their own doctrine. And by the way, any Christian, any religion, Christian or otherwise, that adds human works in addition to what Jesus Christ did on the cross is a perversion. Here's what Paul said about it in Galatians 1 and verse number 6. Now, the Galatian Christians were adding the Jewish custom of circumcision to their salvation. And Paul addresses them by saying, I marvel that ye are so so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. He's saying that you're still preaching Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not a totally different message. But it is another message because there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. You're adding works to grace. The two don't mix. It's like oil and water. You're perverting it. And by adding something to it, you're changing it into a totally different message. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed." Wait a minute, are you saying that the Apostle Paul was not very tolerant? Yes, that's what I'm saying. He was not tolerant of religions that are twisting and perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ because they are doing it at the expense of millions upon millions of souls thinking that they're okay, but when they breathe their last last breath, they end up in hell. I don't know about you, that's pretty serious business to me. I don't, I don't think that we should take it lightly. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that this 144,000 in Revelation 7 is them. 
And they thought it was literal in the beginning until their organization, and that's what I'm calling it, until their organization exceeded 144,000 members. And then they had a big problem with their doctrine, and so they had to change it. I'm not going to go into all the different ways that they danced around that and changed it, and but that's the way that the cults do, is they uh, when they're confronted with the truth and they can't get around it, then they have different little ways they dance around it and hide behind it. Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists have similar type of twists. But the Bible is to be taken literally unless the context makes it clear that it is figurative, metaphorical, or allegorical. There are allegorical passages in the book of Revelation. There are places when the sound of many waters represented the sound of many people. There are times when different things represent, but the word of God always makes that clear. Jesus told many parables. But whenever he told a parable, the word of God says, Then spake he this parable unto them. And the sad part is these corrupt religions take the story of Luke 16 when Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was clothed in linen and fine linen and purple and fared sumptuously every day. And then there was a beggar named Lazarus. And, of course, you know the story. They both died. The rich man uh, that Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, paradise. The rich man died, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Nowhere in that passage does it say that it was a parable. Jesus said there was a certain man. So you have to be aware of that and study that out for yourself and recognize that just because people who sound really, really smart present certain truths, you need to check it out with the whole counsel of God. So, number one, who are the 144,000? Dumb question. <laughs> you want to know why that's a dumb question? Because we just read who they are. It's 12,000 Jews out of the 12 different tribes of Israel that are sealed by God in their foreheads during the tribulation period. That's exactly what we read. And so you say, dumb question. Well, then why do so many religions get it right? Just for fun, I did Google that. And you know, the majority of the Google reports that I got is, I'm not talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or the Seventh-day Adventists. I'm talking about Christian, you know, neo-evangelical religions Almost all of them said that that was a spiritualized text and it's referring to us, the church. Folks, that's wrong. That is so far from true. And if you believe that, you just took about half of your New Testament. You might as well just tear pages out and throw them away. Because if you believe that, the whole New Testament makes no sense whatsoever. None. And God set it out there so that if we rightly divide it, it makes perfect sense. Now, notice as we read here, maybe you picked up on it, maybe you didn't. If you didn't, I'll point it out to you. That when we read our text, the tribe of Dan is omitted, and the name of the tribe of Ephraim is replaced by the word Joseph, 
or the tribe of Joseph in verse number 8. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh were both sons of Joseph. The tribe was split into two so that there would be 12 tribes of Israel going into the land of Canaan. Why did there need to be a 13th tribe? Because God took the tribe of Levi and set them aside for the priesthood, and they were not part of the inheritance. He said, the Lord thy God is thy inheritance. So when he removed Levi, there were only 11 tribes remaining, and so the tribe of Joseph, God split into two tribes, Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. In our text, we read about the tribe of Manasseh, but we also read about the tribe of Joseph. There will be no Levitical priesthood in the millennium, and so that's why Levi in the tribulation period is back being part of the 12 tribes. Levitical priesthood was done away with Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. He fulfilled that Old Testament law. There will be some ceremonial things in the millennium, but it'll be after the order of Melchizedek, not after the Levitical order. Book of Hebrews makes that clear. Why is Dan omitted completely? Why is Ephraim omitted? Well, it was because of idolatry. Clearly, in the Old Testament, because of idolatry. All right, uh, hold your place here and go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 29. Deuteronomy, chapter 29. The Old Testament... And the, the law that was given through Moses is referred to in the book of Hebrews as the Old Covenant. And a covenant is an agreement between two parties. Now, I don't want to burst any of your theological bubbles, but we are not under the New Covenant. Some would take issue with me on that. We are under the New Testament, all right? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. The new covenant is what God has offered to Israel. And when they receive their king and their kingdom, that covenant will be back in force. You can read about that for yourself in the book of Hebrews. If you will read Hebrews with that statement in mind, I promise you, you'll probably see it crystal clear. And that's why people get confused with some of those passages in Hebrews. It's talking about the kingdom, the millennium, the Jews, and so forth. And so it says here in Deuteronomy 29, this is the old covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. It says in verse number 18, it says, Lest there should be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst, The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. Watch this, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. That's talking about a tribe or a family. 
Now, the tribe of Dan, or let me back up a little bit here. I wanted to say this, that the grace of God extends to all people, but particularly to the church age believer. You need to understand that. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that grace and truth didn't exist before Jesus. It just meant that we have something that is particularly full of grace and truth. We're saved by grace through faith. God extended His grace to all people at all times, but under the Old Testament, there were conditions. We're saved by grace, and it is unconditional favor. The Old Testament saint had to do certain things under this covenant, If they rejected God and followed idolatry, God said, this is what's going to happen. You follow me and you love me with all your heart. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your your field and your crops and your family and your health. I'm going to do all these things for you. But if you follow, if you follow other gods, the Lord says there's going to be a curse. And ultimately he says, I'm going to blot out your name from under heaven. Now Ephraim backslid. Uh, he, uh, Hosea 4, verse 17, it says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. That's God speaking. You know, I, I, there's all kinds of people that we want to reach. And, and listen, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The Bible makes it clear that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And Paul said that he was chief. If he can save the chief, he can save every little Indian. Amen. So sinners are what Jesus came to die for and to save. But there does come a time where the Lord says, you know what? I've done all that I can do. Even Romans chapter number 1 talks about God giving them over to a reprobate mind. And so there'll come a point where God will say, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Ephraim backslid, but... Dan, the tribe of Dan, as you study the scripture, we never find anywhere that he ever slid forward. I think that the tribe of Dan was idolatrous when they came out of Egypt. And they never, there's never anything that's good, especially after the book of Judges about the tribe of Dan. Amos chapter 8, verse number 14. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, little g, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise again. Isn't it amazing how that these somewhat obscure passages in the Old Testament, the New Testament sheds light, and we see how that they just perfectly fit together. Now, Jesus spoke of the 144,000, but... He didn't give their number. In Matthew 24 and verse number 21, Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except these days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for, watch this, the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. He's talking about these 144,000 Jews that are the elect in the tribulation period. 
Now, the shortening of days that he referred to, I believe, are a likely reference to Revelation 8 and verse number 12. Listen to what it says. The fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise." It looks to me that if the day and the night is smitten by one-third, eight times three is 24, we have a 24-hour period of time, there's going to come a time during this great tribulation period where God's going to shorten the days to 16 hours. The earth's going to move, or if you're geocentric, the sun's going to move a whole lot quicker. Can you imagine the size of the universe and the distance that the sun is from the earth, if the sun was revolving around the earth in every 24-hour period of time, don't you think that the sun would look like this streak of light in the sky? I would think so. But I believe that the during the tribulation period, these days are going to be shortened by one-third because it's going to get so bad that the Lord Jesus says even the elect, these 144,000, would not be able to endure to the end because of all of those seals and trumpet judgments that God is raining down upon the earth. Jesus calls them elect, and indeed they were. Of all the elects in the Bible, these are the only ones in which a limited number is given in the Bible. And so that brings us to my second and last point here this morning, is who exactly are the elect? Now, I believe without any shadow of a doubt that the 144,000 are the elect that Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. But there are other peoples in the Bible that are referred to as the elect. And with one exception, the term elect always refers to a group of people, not any particular individual. And those people who are deceived by Calvinism or hyper-Calvinism would do well to understand that. The elect is not referring to an individual, it's referring to a group. I'll show you that from the Bible here in just a moment. The only exception is Jesus Christ himself. In Isaiah 42, verse number 1, the Bible says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. That's Jesus Christ, God's elect. It's the only place that I find the term referring to an individual It always refers to a group. So the next group that it can refer to is Israel as a nation. Not just this 144,000, but Israel as a nation. Isaiah 45 and verse number 4 says, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter number 9. Romans chapter number 9. I want to encourage you to beware of narcissistic theology. You know what narcissism is? 
Everything revolves around me. And most theology in modern times is very narcissistic. We got times where it's not doctrinally written to us, and whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Revelation, doesn't matter where we're at, that so many Christians today, because they are not taught how to rightly divide, they just assume that everything's about me. And it's not, folks. In Romans chapter number 9, and look with me at verse number 7, Romans 9, 7, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, watch this, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The purpose of God according to election. Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael. And then even even after Sarah died, he had sons of Keturah, many of them unnamed, that he sent away to thee. So just the descendants of Abraham are not counted part of the elect, but rather through Isaac. And then after Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God in his purpose of election said, I'm choosing Jacob over Esau. This was before they were ever born, but it was all according to election. Now, here's an interesting point. It says that the elder shall serve the younger. Was there ever a time in which Esau, as an individual, served Jacob? No way, no how. Jacob came back from his father-in-law Laban with all of his family and his flocks, and he was scared to death of Esau. He tried to give him an, an, an offering, gave him a bunch of cattle to try to appease him. You don't find anywhere where Esau was the servant of Jacob. So is the Scripture not true? No, the Scripture is absolutely true. But the Holy Spirit is revealing that this election, God is talking about a nation, a group of people, not every individual. And that's where the Calvinist, the Reformed theologian, gets confused. They presume that election is talking about me. Listen, the church is elect. We'll get to that here in just a moment. As a whole, God elected the church, but not every individual that becomes part of that church. I mean, you could say that God elected every human to be part of the church because the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's important that we make sure that our theological understanding that the pieces of the puzzle fit on all of the different sides of what the Bible says. Anyone can take one verse here and one verse there 
and teach a doctrine that gets away from the truth, but it's important that we take the whole counsel of God in consideration. How about the angels? 1 Timothy 5, verse number 21, Paul says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. The elect angels, that's the ones that didn't fall, that didn't sin and follow Lucifer. The elect ones, that's God's angels, and they are referred to as the elect. And then we have the church. Look at Romans chapter number 8, just a page back of where you're at. Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 31 says, what shall we say, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also make intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? This is some very good promises right here. If you're going through something, God gives a promise to the elect, to the church. If you're a born-again Christian and you believe the gospel, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword... None of these can separate us from the love of Christ. Verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The elect can be a reference to the church. Now, Paul obviously was not teaching Calvinism because he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 10, He said, therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I wish that I could say that the salvation of souls has no bearing upon us, but it does. How shall they hear without a preacher? Listen, people around us, if you've got people in Statesville, If you've got people that you know, loved ones, and you've never told them about Jesus Christ, and they die, and and you just assume that they knew the gospel, it's on us, folks, if we don't tell them. They're not going to be saved if they don't hear about Jesus Christ. And then, what about our lives, the way that we live our lives? Paul said, I'm enduring all of this. For the elect's sake, those that are going to be saved, I don't want to be a hindrance to them getting saved. If I quit, if I falter, if I get, if I go astray and backslide, it could make a difference in people whether they get saved or not. That's you say that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it is. We ought to take that seriously, and we ought to live for Jesus Christ and be faithful to Him, like Paul was saying. Now, Peter also clarifies the meaning of this without stealing away the blessing of it. In 1 Peter 1 and verse number 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect, watch this, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Listen, God, when we, we are part of the elect if we're saved, but that doesn't mean that God just handpicked us and picked some people to be saved and some people to be lost. When you got saved, you got in on being part of the elect, but it's according to the foreknowledge of God. When God says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, God's not saying whosoever, like, I didn't mean it. It's not a twist on words. God's not going to, you know, people people stand before God at the great white throne of judgment and saying, Lord, I, I, I tried real... I tried to believe on Jesus. I wanted to get saved, and God's going to say, well, I didn't pick you. Well, but you said whosoever, and I did. And then the Lord get you know, the Lord's got a copy of his Bible in heaven, and he says, well, you know, so if you, if you take this verse over here, and then you take other seven other passages over here, and if you make all this connection, then you can figure out that whosoever doesn't really mean whosoever. I was just playing. I was just trying to trick you. I was only, you know, whosoever is only for people that can read the code. What happened to Jesus saying, suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not? You see how that this Reformed theology saying that the elect is referring to the select is just, it's just messed up theology. And I just find, I know that there are some sincere people that have adopted the theology of Calvinism because they couldn't figure out how to answer all of these passages. But, you know, I don't have to under, I don't have to get into the mind of God in order to trust Him. Do you? I can trust Him even when I can't totally understand His ways. This says we are elect According to the foreknowledge of God. That means he knows who's going to get saved, but he ain't handpicking who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In short, I'd like to say it this way. God didn't save you because you're special. You're special because God saved you. Amen? So we have different options here. We've got Jesus was referred to as the elect. We have Israel, the elect, the elect angels. We have the church. And then, of course, we have the 144,000, and Jesus has already identified them. And I want to close with this thought, and that is this. It's really a question that I think that every one of us, if you haven't asked this question, you need to ask this question. How can I become part of this number? Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about the 144,000. I'm talking about the elect, the church that Paul was talking about. How can I be part of that elect? Listen, if you're wanting to be part of this elect, the 144,000, well, unless any of you are truly descendants of one of these 12 tribes, and unless any of you are living in the tribulation period, and then next next week we're going to see some criteria, you're going to have to be a pretty awfully special human being with some pretty good pedigree to qualify for this. 
none of us are going to be part of this 144,000 in Revelation 7. But the elect in Romans 8 and in Ephesians and Timothy and 1 Peter chapter number 1, you can be part of that. And you ought to say, hey, how can I get in on that? Well, I'm glad you asked. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse number 4 says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God for our gospel, that's the key right there, the gospel, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Listen, it's going to be powerful. When you hear that Jesus Christ died for your sins, if God the Holy Spirit is revealing to you your sinful condition, listen, it's, it's a, it's a no-brainer. We're all sinners, okay? Most will confess, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. But usually men look at it like, I'm a sinner just like everyone else. That's not God speaking to you. That's just your rational mind. When God speaks to you, you ain't even thinking about anyone else. You're just thinking about you. Listen, when Peter was walking on water and he began to sink, he wasn't worried. You know, at the end of the book of John, Peter says, what's John going to do, Lord? Peter wasn't worried about what John was doing or Andrew or anything else. Peter's sinking in the sea in the storm, and he says, Lord, save me. And when God reveals to you that you're a wicked, hell-bound sinner, which we all are, just some realize it and others don't, when God reveals it, you don't care about how you fit in in comparison to everyone else. You just know that you need something desperately to save you and to cleanse you. How can you become part of this number? Clearly, by believing from the heart the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 6, verse number 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Doctrine is truth, and the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, if you will. Romans 10, verse number 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Uh, I believe that believing is easy, but I don't believe in easy believism. Not a head knowledge. It's a heart knowledge. God, I am a wretched sinner, and I deserve hell. Not because some preacher put these words in my mouth, but I know it. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins, and I want to receive Him as my Savior, Lord I'm calling upon you and I want you to save me right here and right now. I want you to change my life. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a life full of sin. I want a life that's got Jesus in it 
and a desire for righteousness. That's when salvation comes from the heart. Oh, you can, you can call upon him with your mouth. You can confess him with your mouth. But if it doesn't come from the heart, it's just a profession and not a confession. You can be part of that elect if you'll just call upon him here today. God voted for you on the cross of Calvary. The devil voted against you. You get the deciding vote. If you're not saved, if you're not part of that elect, why don't you get in on it today? Why don't you cast that deciding vote and say no to sin and say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior.